Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here for our church. And if this is your first time with us, we are really delighted to have you here. Thanks for joining us. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 945. When a person meets with extraordinary success in an endeavor, their fans flock to hear the secrets of their success. So people listen up when Bill Gates speaks of how to succeed in business, how to run a business, or when LeBron James talks about how to play basketball. Or back when Billy Graham was alive and he would speak about some tips for effective evangelism. So to what do you think our Lord Jesus would credit the success of his ministry? Have you ever thought about that? In our study of the book of Hebrews, we come to chapter 8. And for a few chapters now, we've been told of Jesus' role as high priest and how he is better than all the old high priests of Israel. And in our passage today, we'll see that because he is a better high priest, that means that he conducts a superior ministry. And the Lord will let us in on one of the secrets of Jesus' success. And I'll tell you, it's not about what seminary he went to. It's not about how amazing his management skills were. The main thing we'll see is that the shocking secret to Jesus' success in ministry was and still is his people. The shocking secret to Jesus' ministry success is his people. Now, to get there, we'll consider this text in three sections. You can see in your outline. We'll talk about the high priest we have, the ministry they copy, and finally, the people he serves or the people he has. Do you ever feel like you've hardly done anything at all to contribute to his success? Welcome to the club. That's the point. But don't let a little thing like that prevent you from seeing the real secret here. Let me pray again for our time and we'll dive in. Our Father in heaven, please open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word here from Hebrews. Help us to see who Jesus is and why his ministry is so successful. And we ask that you would please strengthen us by it. Grant us more of your mercy and your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we'll see in this text is the high priest we have. The author by this time has been going on for a while about how, about the priesthood of Jesus and his discussion of that topic, Jesus' priesthood. It started in force in chapter 5, although he laid the groundwork for it in chapters 2 and 3. And he's taken a few digressions along the way for the sake of application. But now in chapter 8, he wrangles our attention back to the matter at hand with a clear reminder of what this entire middle section of this book is all about. 
Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, this is one of the very few places in the entire Bible where an author comes right out and states explicitly for us, here's the main thing I'm trying to tell you. So let's savor this for a moment, shall we? There it is. Here's the main thing. I don't have to read between the lines. You don't really have to do a whole lot to check my work. Here is the main point. We have such a high priest. This is the sort of high priest he's been describing since the end of chapter 2 when he called him a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, I do want you to notice something about the way he words his main point because I don't think it's an accident. Notice that he does not say, Jesus is such a high priest. No, he self-consciously says, we have such a high priest. You see, he writes all this stuff that he's been saying about Jesus' priesthood, not to simply straighten out our theology, as helpful as it may be to do so. No, he wants us to delight in our high priest and to embrace him as our own. He wants us to grab hold of him the way you might rush to greet a loved one after a lengthy overseas trip. Now, what sort of high priest do we now have in Jesus if we trust him? Well, he says three things. The end of verse 1. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So he wants you to remember, this guy, Jesus, he's not only a priest, he's also a king. He's seated next to the throne. He is the king of heaven and earth. He is the one who has been authorized by God to speak for God. He's not just a priest, he's also a king. Also, second at the beginning of verse 2, he says he is a minister in the holy places. So he's a minister, he's active, and he's up in heaven, he's, he's in the place where God's throne is. These are the holy places, the place where God's will is done at all times without any resistance. The place where sin has been dealt with and done away with forever. Jesus is a minister in the holy places. And third, at the end of verse 2, he wants us to know that he is in the true tent that the Lord set up, not 
man, you see, Jesus conducts his priesthood not from any earthly tent or temple. And you see, some people think that he's going to minister in a temple on earth again someday. No, he's in the, the true tent. He serves God in the truest temple of all. The one located in heaven where God resides. The earthly temple was meant to be a picture of God dwelling with his people. But the heavenly temple is the place where that picture is the only reality. This is the place where God dwells fully and Jesus conducts his priesthood there. How does this apply? This high priest that we have. Well, do you ever wish Jesus were still on earth? Do you ever wish that you could see him and touch him? Hear his voice encouraging you through your trials? That sure would be wonderful. But Hebrews tells us that what we actually have is something even better. We have a high priest who is not here. Because he's busy doing what he does out there in God's heaven of heavens. He is in the place where everything works as it's supposed to work. And he's in the process of getting us to be with him there. We're already there in spirit, and that heaven has broken into our world. Jesus is there on our behalf, and we'll join him there just as soon as he's finished with us here. Consider all the other priests a person could have. Consider the high priests of other religions. Those who claim to help people get close to God. But can they really if they're not already there? Consider the high priests of secularism. The academics and the experts who tell us everything we ought to think, say, and do. But they don't reside in the place where everything already functions the way it ought to. And consider the high priests of media and big tech. Those who see it as their duty to humanity to decide which information ought to be censored as misinformation. And which may be permitted to pass along to the masses. Well, what do any of these priests really have to offer maybe a sense of belonging perhaps an illusion of self-respect or self-fulfillment but none of them not one of them can offer us a seat in the heavenly holy places at the right hand of the almighty god friends the priest who serves god in heaven the one who rules all things and whose ministry is more effective than any other, that priest has been tremendously successful at what he does. And that priest is the one that you have.
if you simply rely on him to get you through. That priest, our high priest, is the real deal. His ministry is so successful that the best any other priest can do is just try and copy him. That's where the author goes next. Let's talk about the ministry they copy, verses 3 through 6. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Now, the author here looks in particular at the Jewish priests in Jerusalem, and he explains that they are little more than copycats. All they can do is copy what they've seen Jesus do. He talks about the copy and shadow that they serve in verse 5. He starts out in verse 3 by pointing out a similarity between Jesus the priest and the Jewish priest. Verse 3, both of them must offer gifts and sacrifices. That's one of the main thing a priest, one of the main things a priest does. He knows the protocol for how sins can be forgiven. And so as in Jerusalem's temple, so also in heaven's temple, sacrifices must be offered and Here he just plants that idea. He'll come back to it in detail in chapters 9 and 10. This idea of the sacrifice that Jesus offers. Because in verse 4 here, he, he, he gets to what he wants to focus on here. Which is that if if Jesus had stayed on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. This is one reason why his ascension to heaven 40 days after his resurrection was so important. He had to get on to his priestly duties that God the Father had assigned for him to do. But why couldn't Jesus have been a priest if he were on earth? In the previous chapter we saw last week, uh, chapter 7, verse 14, the author already explained that Jesus was from the wrong tribe among Israel's tribes. He was descended from the Jewish tribe of Judah, the tribe to which the kings belonged, but it was not the tribe to which the priests belonged. That's sort of a reason why he couldn't be a priest on earth, but that doesn't fully explain it. What the author is getting at here in chapter 8 is in verse 5. Those earthly priests from the tribe of Levi... They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And it was for that reason that Jesus could never have joined their ranks. Let me put it this way. Let's say we're going to start a new ministry 
at our church. Grace Fellowship Church, we're going to start a ministry of Elvis impersonation. Okay? That's right. We're going to recruit and train a troop of Elvis impersonators. Lonnie Daubenspeck can get it started for us. Okay? Thank you, Lonnie. She's already figured out a way for us to memorize Bible verses to the tune of Love Me Tender, Love Me Sweet. Okay, so she'll get this started. We've now got this troop of Elvis impersonators. And just picture, what would we do if Elvis himself showed up? It's not that far-fetched, really. All you have... All you have to do is rearrange the letters in the name Elvis and you get lives. (laughs) Bear with me. All right. Let's say Elvis Presley himself showed up in the flesh. Would we let him join our ministry of Elvis impersonation? I don't think we would. Because first of all, he would show all of us up, right? And second, it would turn the whole thing into a mockery. The point of impersonation is that you're trying to be like someone or something else. And it ruins the whole point of it if you've got the original present. You can't impersonate yourself. That's what Hebrews is saying here in verses 4 and 5. The tabernacle built by Moses was only a copy and impersonation of the heavenly tent. Even the book of Exodus recognizes this fact. In verse 6, the author quotes from Exodus 25, verse 40, where Moses, up on top of Mount Sinai, was given a vision into heaven, and he was told to take careful notes about what he saw so that the Jewish tabernacle would be an accurate copy. Now, because Jesus' ministry in heaven is the real deal in the real temple of which all priestly ministry on earth is but a copy, verse 6 says that the ministry of Jesus Christ is more excellent. You see, when you do the real thing in the real place for it, that will be more excellent than doing a copy of it in a copycat place. Just last month, I had the privilege of serving as a base umpire for a consolation game of the Little League Baseball World Series. Both of the teams in this game had already been eliminated from the tournament in Williamsport, and they were supposed to get to play each other for fun, but there was so much rain, things got delayed, and the Little League International canceled these these consolation games where the teams could play some more. So we offered to host it here in State College. Little League sent their teams down here for a day, and it was a tremendous experience for me. I can now put International World Series competition on my umpiring resume. Not bad for my first year. But I must be honest... Though it was super cool to get to do that, and it was actually kind of a life dream of mine, it wouldn't even come close to one day getting to umpire 
a Little League World Series game in Williamsport, in the real place where the tournament is held. So also, Jesus' ministry is more excellent because it happens in the real place for such ministry, in heaven, at the Father's right hand. Therefore, Jesus' ministry is a tremendous success. But that's not all, because the author is about to reveal to us the shocking secret of that success. Verse 6 says that his ministry is better because the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. This simple statement launches us forward and it will take him the next two chapters to unpack what it means for this covenant to be better and why its promises are better see the ministry is better because the covenant is better and the covenant is better because the promises are better but what does all that mean well here in the rest of this chapter he's going to give us the first reason why the covenant promises are better and it's because of the people involved in it it's the people he has now before i read the end of the chapter here let me explain for a moment what a covenant is this is a very important word here he's going to say many things about covenants old and new and we don't use that word a whole lot today except maybe with respect to marriage which christians still believe to be a covenant And also, if you buy or sell a piece of property, you often have to sign off on a series of covenants. Covenant is a fancy word for a contract, a very relational form of a contract. A covenant is a legally binding agreement between two parties where each party has certain responsibilities spelled out for them. And there are benefits for keeping the contract and there are consequences for breaking it. So God had a contract with the people of Israel established at Mount Sinai when Moses delivered God's teachings to the people. But Jesus has now initiated a new contract, a new covenant with his people. So with that understanding of covenant, think contract You're ready for the rest of the chapter. Let me read verses 7 through 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. 
and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, in this passage, he's speaking about why the new covenant is superior to the old. Remember, his larger point, this is proof of why Jesus' ministry is superior to that of the Jewish priests. Here's where he reveals the secret of Jesus' success. Why is his ministry more excellent? Well, it's because his covenant is superior. But why is his covenant superior? Verse 6 said it's because it's built on better promises. But what are those promises? Verse 7 tells us that the first covenant had faults. It was not faultless. And what were the faults of that first covenant with Israel? Verse 8 says, He finds fault with them. The problem you see wasn't actually with the covenant, it was with the people. And the author quotes this lengthy passage from Jeremiah chapter 31 to support his case. Jeremiah wrote at a dark time in the history of Israel when the Jewish people were facing attack and defeat at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. They were in dire straits for having violated their covenant with God. And in the middle of Jeremiah's book, he gives them some bright rays of hope. He lets them know that it will not always be like this. The days are coming when God will fix everything wrong with the current covenant and he will establish a new covenant that addresses all of these problems. And again, what were the problems with the old covenant? Verse 8, he finds fault with them and what are the faults he finds with them verse 9 though i led them by the hand out of slavery slavery in egypt they did not continue in my covenant back in chapters 3 and 4 we've already seen this the author spent much time discussing how these people had heard god's word but they did not believe it and they did not obey it So the first generation of Jewish people to come out of Egypt, they fell dead in the wilderness without entering the promised rest in the land God was giving to them. And later generations likewise did not believe or obey God's word. So they eventually got sent into exile in Babylon in the time of Jeremiah. Here's what he's saying. The problem with the old covenant was not with the covenant itself, but with the people involved. They were sinners and they kept on sinning. They had ways to deal with their sin, but only in copies and shadows. They had a a ministry of forgiveness impersonation. Never the real deal. In short, God made wonderful promises to the people in the Old Covenant and about the people in the Old Covenant, but he never made any promise 
to produce in them any true knowledge of God. The problem was the people. So how did God promise to fix this problem? Verse 10, here is the new covenant I will make. I, God, will myself write my laws right on their hearts instead of on tablets of stone. I, God, will be their God and they will be my people. Will be close. In verse 11, he says that the idea of knowing God won't be a foreign concept to them anymore. They will all know me intimately. In verse 12, he says, I won't just remind them of their sins every time they bring an animal sacrifice. This time, I will actually forgive their sins. I will not hold their sin against them ever Again. So do you see what is the secret to Jesus' success? His ministry is better because his covenant is better. And his covenant is better because his promises are better. And the promises are better because he promises to make the people better. Isn't that crazy? It's not that the new people, the people of the new covenant, sin any less than the old people did. It's not that the new people are innately good and righteous in a way that the old people weren't. No, the difference between God's old people and God's new people is simply that the new people have a promise. That promise is that God will make his new people into the kind of people he expects them to be. That promise was never in place in the old covenant. And that's why this new covenant is, verse 6, enacted on better promises. And friends, this is really great news. Jesus' ministry does not depend on the quality of the people in his covenant. He makes them into the sort of people he could never neglect. He makes them his own concern. So their failures have been paid for and won't ever be held against them. You see, the shocking secret to Jesus' ministry success is his people. His forgiven people whom he has drawn closely to himself. If you do not yet trust or follow Jesus, could you please tell me where else you have found any God like this God? A God who requires his people to be a certain sort of people, and then who himself promises to make them into that sort of people. This is his incredible mercy. We call it his amazing grace. And those of you who do follow Jesus and who love him with an incorruptible love, please know that you are not pleasing to God 
because you are spiritually mature. You are spiritually mature because you are pleasing to God. Do not get that backwards. Friends, this is the sort of high priest we have in Jesus Christ. Without him, it's up to you to find God and get your sins forgiven. And that will not end well for anyone who rejects him. But with him, you now know God. He is your God and you are his precious child. His law is being written on your heart so you can obey him from the inside out and not merely as a behavioral formality. Jesus' ministry is far more excellent than that of anyone else. His ministry is superior to the old Jewish system and it remains superior to the modern secular humanist system. And the shocking secret to his ministry success is his people. The people whom he serves. The people whom he has brought close to God the Father. The people whom he is making into the very sort of people he wants them to be. Is this Jesus your Lord and Master? Will you have him as your high priest? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are in such awe that we have such a high priest as we have in Jesus, one who does the real ministry in the real place, not copycat ministry in a copycat place, the one who has actually once and for all brought us near to you so that our sins can be forgiven and we can be your people. Help us, Lord, to delight in Jesus, to love him, to hold fast to him. Lord, we are yours. Please make us, as you have promised, into the people you want us to be. Amen.